Welcome back to all of you who are online. Uh, <clears throat> I was just told that there are about 500 people kind of streaming in online. So it's wonderful to think of such an enlarged Sangha uh, joining us here. Tonight I'd like to continue the discussion of <coughs> applying how we can apply the depths of the Buddha's teaching in our daily lives. Because that really is the challenge. You know, we come here and practice and we have certain levels of insight and understanding. And the challenge is how can we really bring that forward into the busyness of our lives? So the possibility of happiness both individually and collectively, rests on one basic understanding. And that is that the unfolding of our lives begins in the mind. And the Buddha expressed this very clearly in the first opening verses of the Dhammapada, which most of you probably are aware is a collection of verses of teachings of the Buddha, a very famous collection. So the very opening stanzas, our mind is the forerunner of all action. All deeds are led by mind, created by mind. If one speaks or acts with an unwholesome mind, suffering follows, as the wheel follows the hoof of an ox pulling a cart. one speaks or acts with an unwholesome mind, suffering follows. Mind is the forerunner of all actions. All deeds are led by mind, created by mind. If one speaks or acts with a wholesome mind, happiness flows as surely as one's shadow. So, in some way, the Buddha just (laughs) laid it out very clearly in terms of how to create happiness in our lives. So we need to explore and investigate the nature and the workings of this mind. How is is it all unfolding? How does the actions or the qualities of our mind manifest in the world? So I just want to give a very brief kind of theoretical framework from the Buddhist perspective of what constitutes what we call mind. The most fundamental aspect of what we call mind is consciousness, and that is the simple knowing faculty. So knowing a sight, knowing a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a mind object, It's that which knows. And this consciousness is arising and passing in each moment with its own object. So there's seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, and so forth. But consciousness doesn't arise alone. It arises together with what are called mental factors, So there's a whole range of mental factors that arise in different combinations 
in every moment of consciousness. And these mental factors color the consciousness, or they inform each moment of consciousness in different ways. And it's these mental factors which continually condition and recondition all the patterns of our lives. So just as an example of some of the different mental factors that we're very familiar with. Love, fear, joy, anger, grief, wisdom, ignorance, mindfulness, concentration, compassion, they are all mental factors. And when they arise, they, they color, or they, they give a, a flavor or a taste to that moment of consciousness. So being here on retreat, and also with wise attention in our lives, brings us a very immediate and direct experience of which factors leads to more suffering and which factors make us happy. And this is not complicated. I mean, we're probably already quite familiar with this. How does it feel when we're angry? How does it feel when we're generous, when we're loving? You know, it doesn't take deep samadhi to really recognize the effect these mental factors are having in our day-to-day experience. One of the ways the Buddha expressed this wisdom, that is, of seeing what causes happiness and what causes suffering, he expressed it as the law of karma. And so tonight I want to explore in a little bit of depth the understanding of this most basic teaching you know, with, one, with what the Buddha had to offer. Okay, so basically the law of karma, before I go on, I just want to clarify the term a little bit. Technically, there's a double phrase. It's karma vipaka, which means action and result. So literally, karma refers to the action. But in popular parlance, we kind of combine those two in karma, and we're including in our ordinary understanding both the action and the result. But it's just to know that there are actually two different aspects, karma vipaka. Okay, so the basic understanding of the law of karma is that all volitional activities, that is, volitional activities of body, of speech, of mind, have the power to bring about results. So that power to bring about results resides in this mental factor of volition. This is the karmic force in our lives. So it's helpful to look 
a little more carefully at this factor of volition because it plays such a critical role in how our lives unfold. So notice when you're about to do or say something, you know, to to perform some action. There is that momentary impulse. It's like a gathering of the energy, the willing of something happening. That's what the volition is. We might think of it as the command moment in the mind. You know, so this is different than just a thought arising of what we might do. So it's not just a thought, it's that that particular factor which gathers all the energy. And as it's described in the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, it gathers all the energy of all the other factors that are present and directs it to the accomplishment of what we want to do. And so sometimes, in terms of the practice and encouraging people to notice these moments of volition or intention, uh, I call it the about-to moment. You know, you're walking and you come to the door about to reach. Right? There's that moment before the reaching happens, but it's, it's the word impelling or you know, it results in the action. That's the moment of volition. One of the interesting things about volition, which you can also check out for yourself, is that these volitions or another a synonym for that is intentions that these volitions keep arising throughout the action. So, for example, if you're walking and there's the initial volition to walk, and so that's what gets us started, but this volition has to keep flowing throughout the whole movement because if the volition stops, the movement is going to stop. So it's something like an electric current. You know, maybe it's putting a light on. If you stop the current, the light goes out. So if the volition stops in the midst of an action, the action is going to stop. This is something we generally don't notice at all. And it's just kind of fun to, <laughs> to check it out for yourself. Uh, because it's not hard to see, you know, as you're walking. Uh, so you can play with that. So although these volitions... <laughs> are very quick, they're arising just in the moment, and they're very small, they're hardly noticeable, they contain a huge power. So that's why the Buddha gave so much emphasis to understanding volition. And the power they have, contained right within that volition, is the power to bring about future results. So you could think of it almost as like the power in a seed. You know, a seed can be very small, and yet it has the power to produce a tree. So that's the, the, uh, the power that volition has. It will bring about future results. And that's why it's the linchpin of understanding the law of karma. 
we really have to um, deeply understand this if we want to understand the unfolding of our lives. Because our lives are unfolding in a lawful way. And one of the laws is the law of karma. So if we want to understand how our lives are unfolding, it's like we have to appreciate the power that resides in these volitions, in these intentions. Volitional actions bear fruit. We cannot fully understand the Buddha's teachings without understanding to some extent this basic law of cause and effect, that intention, volition, brings results. What's interesting is that probably most of us on some level can appreciate that our actions will bear some kind of fruit. You know, on just a basic theoretical level, we may understand that. But what I find really interesting, and I see this in myself, and I imagine it's true of everybody else, how often do we consider that truth before we take an action? Do we register that the volition behind this action is going to bear some future result? So that's an important, an important piece of information for us to have. And it brings about a result not only in the moment, and this is what makes the law of karma so vast and so difficult to understand as well, that it has the power to bring about results in the immediate future and in the long-distant future. So this gets to be quite mysterious. You know, how does an intention in this moment bring a result five lifetimes from now? So this is why the Buddha said when he was teaching about karma, don't think too much about it because it will drive you crazy. <laughs> and he said, really only the mind of a Buddha can understand it in its full complexity. So in talking about it tonight, I'm not going to suggest that we're going to come away understanding the answer to that question of how something we do now will result in something in the distant future. But it will provide a framework, really a framework of guidance in our lives. To emphasize how it's possible that a small moment can have such huge power, uh, I came across this uh, statement by uh, Albert Einstein. He said in talking about his equation, E equals mc squared, he said that the energy contained in a raisin is enough to power all the energy needs of New York City for a day. So you know those raisins you've been having a tea? <laughs> Do you ever think of that? <laughs> Well, likewise, we rarely think of the fact that our volitional actions have an analogous kind of power. 
right? But it's hidden. It's not obvious. <clears throat> now, these intentions, volitions, are ethically neutral. The intention, that particular mental factor, it's not wholesome, it's not unwholesome. It's just the, one might say, the vehicle or the mechanism for the karmic unfolding. Contains the power to bring about results, but it is the motivations associated with the intention that determine what the result will be. So this is important. It's the, the volition is kind of the energy impulse, but then what determines the particular results that come have to do with the motivations behind the intention, behind the volition. We see, and the Buddha pointed out, which motivations lead to suffering and which motivations lead to happiness, to peace, to freedom. So he clarified this in many ways, but the most simplest description of understanding how motivations influence outcome, he described the roots of all unwholesome actions as being greed and hatred and delusion. So we could trace any unwholesome action that we do back to one of those three roots. So those are things we can keep an eye out for if we're trying to see what our motivations are in a particular action. Okay, is there greed here? Or is there aversion or anger? Is there delusion? And likewise, the three wholesome roots, obviously, are non-greed, which is generosity, non-hatred, which is loving-kindness, and non-delusion, which is wisdom. So I appreciate this because it kind of simplifies our task of trying to understand, okay, well, what are the motivations behind our actions? Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, and sometimes they can be very subtle. Uh, but basically they come down to these three unwholesome roots and three wholesome roots. What we find, though, is that our motivations can be very subtle and they are often overlooked. You know, we have an intention to do something and we just do it. I would say probably most of the time we don't stop to pay attention to that moment, to that about-to moment and consider what the motivation is. Right? So this is... This is a challenging part of the practice, but it has such consequence in our lives that it would be worth beginning to explore the possibility of paying attention to that. So just as a few examples, how sometimes it's very uh, difficult to really assess the motivation. For example, if Maybe there's an impulse, an intention to give. There could be a lot of different motivations behind that, even though the act of generosity itself is a wholesome act, and there's always a wholesome act aspect to it, but it could be mixed 
at times, maybe with some unwholesome aspects. Now, is it mixed with expectation of getting something back? Are we giving out of guilt in some situation? Is the motivation metta or compassion? So I'll just give you an example of it. This was very striking to me of where I completely missed a kind of subtle motivation that was in my mind in an act of generosity. This goes back to my India days. I was in Bodh Gaya, uh, which is, you know, the small, really, village, but it's where the Buddha was enlightened, so it's, it's a very powerful place. And in between retreats, I was just in the local bazaar, uh, buying some fruits and vegetables and stuff. And as those of you who've been in India know, uh, there are often just a lot of beggars around, especially little kids. So I'm buying these oranges, uh, and this little beggar boy comes up with his hand out. And just without thinking, you know, I take one of the oranges I just bought and give it to him. So this was not... <laughs> this was not some great act of generosity. It was, just a, it was just a small thing. So I take the orange and give it to him. And then something really interesting happened. He just walked away without the slightest acknowledgement. Like, uh, I was not expecting effusive thanks. <laughs> and I didn't realize I was expecting anything. But when I gave him the orange and he just walked away, it revealed, oh yeah, there was a little bit of an expectation of even the slightest acknowledgement, you know, a smile. So that's how how subtle it can be, that, that often there are these motivations mixed in that we don't even recognize, we don't see, unless we're really paying attention. So... discovering what our motivations are is really the gift of mindfulness to this understanding. Because it's only if we're really being mindful in the moment that we even have a chance of seeing and understanding. Uh, So mindfulness just plays such a key role not only here on retreat, but in our lives. So the writer John Barth, in talking about understanding our own motivations, he has this one line which I think will resonate. Self-knowledge is always bad news. (laughs) When we really start looking at our minds, (laughs) it's always bad news. (laughs) But when we examine our motivations carefully, you know, when we're really watching and trying to see some of the subtleties, we'll see that we're probably less good and also less bad than we think we are. You know, we all are just this mix. And this mix, again, was expressed in a line from, by the poet uh, W.H. Auden, 
Again, this is another one of my favorite lines. Love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. <laughs> so it's just acknowledge, yeah. <laughs> we all have crooked hearts, and our neighbor has crooked hearts, and we can love. You know, and so it's just appreciating. It's appreciating the complexity of our own condition. It's not all one way or all another way. Like, we're a mix. And that's why we need to pay attention. Because in the mix, if we want to create the conditions for happiness, we have to sort out, okay, what, what are the wholesome states? What are the unwholesome states? Uh, so this is a powerful investigation, which can be done as well in the world as in here. And it provides a framework for really connecting with the depth of practice in the midst of our lives. Uh, And probably becoming aware of our motivations, it may be more obvious, you know, in the busyness of our lives and our relationships and our work. Uh, So... I would, I would just encourage you to take interest in that because it is so important. So volition is the force in the mind that initiates the action and contains the power to bring a result. Motivation is the factor or factors which determine what the fruit of that volition will be. So did you see the difference? The challenge in our practice, one of the challenges, and in our lives, is integrating this understanding of karma with our growing insight into emptiness, selflessness, the selfless, insubstantial nature of phenomena. So some very common questions that arise. If there's no self, who experiences karmic results? I must have heard that question a thousand times. (laughs) Or, if everything is empty, what does it matter what I do? So these are some of the questions that come up when we try to integrate the understanding of the law of karma and actions produce results, to integrate that understanding with the profound insight into the empty, selfless nature of everything. So, uh, what we come to understand is that a low phenomena are insubstantial and they're empty of self, everything that's arising and passing, but still they are unfolding lawfully. It's not that things are happening chaotically. And the law of karma is one of the laws, not the only one, but that governs the unfolding of this empty process. So a few teachers have in really uh, clever ways, 
express the unity of these two understandings. The understanding of emptiness and the understanding of karma and the law of cause and effect. So the Dalai Lama, I'll read a few of them because different teachers expressed it differently. He said, a Buddha perceives the ultimate truth, emptiness, while leaving conventional truth untouched. Which means, yeah, the conventional truth is working even as we understand the empty nature of it all. And then Padmasambhava, who was the great Indian adept who brought Buddhism from India to Tibet, and he's, he's really revered in Tibet almost as the second Buddha. He said, his view of emptiness is as vast as the sky, but his attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So the one does not exclude the other or in conflict with the other. Our view or understanding of emptiness can be as vast as the sky, and yet within that, we are paying that careful attention to the motivations behind our actions. And so one phrase that has come up is, everything rests on the tip of motivation in terms of our karmic unfolding. Then there was a Korean Zen master who founded the Providence Zen Center and a lot of branch monasteries, uh, Sung San Sansanim. He expressed it this way. There's no right and no wrong. The level of emptiness. But right is right and wrong is wrong. The law of karma. There is no right, there is no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. Can we hold both? Can we really live from both of those perspectives. So the last one I'll mention is from Suzuki Roshi, who founded the San Francisco Zen Center. He said, everything is perfect, and there's always room for improvement. (laughs) So on the surface, it seems paradoxical, but in living, it's not paradoxical at all. We can hold both levels. Okay, just as an example. A cup. The cup holds water. We can, you know, describe its shape and its aesthetics and what it's made of and all of that. If we looked at this cup under an electron microscope, and I've never looked through an electron microscope, so I don't really know what you see, but what I'm imagining is there's no cup. Cup has completely disappeared. It's a whole different level or order of reality. But it's not that what we see under an electron microscope is here and cup is here. It's, the same. it's a unity, and it's just seeing things on different levels. On one level, it's a cup, and we take care of it, and we wash it, and we everything, all the ways we relate to a cup, and at the same time, we can at least appreciate the understanding that on the subatomic level, there's no cup. So that could help us a little bit, 
to learn how to live on the relative level of cup and everything else, just our ordinary conventional reality, to live on the conventional level with less attachment. Because we also, at the same time, understand that on another level, there's no cup. It's all empty. It's all insubstantial. Can we hold both? So this, this is really the challenge of our lives. It's important to understand, I think in a little more detail, kind of the specific ways that the karmic unfolding happens in our lives. how we can actually experience it so it's not just a Buddhist philosophical teaching. So the first aspect is something that people probably are not that familiar with, but it's something called present karma. And that is we can notice the immediate effects of an action in the present moment the immediate effects of different mind states. So if there's fear, or there's love, or there's anger, or there's joy, or you know, the whole range of different emotions and mind states, we can see, we can feel the karmic effect of those mind states right in the present moment. What does anger feel like? What does generosity feel like? What does you know, all of these different states we can see immediately whether they're the cause of happiness or the cause of suffering for us. So that's immediate present karma. We can understand present karma in noticing how people react to us as we're experiencing different mind states. You know, when you're with somebody who's very angry, or you're very angry, and you notice how people respond to you, It probably is not generally, unless one is quite advanced, with great open-heartedness. <laughs> right? If we have a lot of angry energy coming or we're projecting that, generally people put up some kind of energetic defense you know, because it's, it's a powerful energy. So that's a, karmic res- that's, that's a present karmic result. And if we're loving, if we're generous, how do people relate to us when we're in that state? Generally, it's the cause of a lot of goodwill, you know, and deep friendship. So this is not this is not mysterious, you know, and we've all experienced that. But this is one of the workings of karma, and we can see it right in the present moment. There's another aspect of present karma, which I think. Uh, could be very helpful in our lives if we really uh, embody it. And that is the degree to which present qualities of mind affect the outcome of what we want to accomplish. So there's there's an immediate present karma. We want to undertake some project. Accomplishing, so, <clears throat> excuse me, accomplishing something is usually related 
to certain factors like energy and perseverance and wisdom that we bring to the action. And that will affect (coughs) the outcome of the action. And if we bring lethargy and disinterest and, you know, more unwholesome states, it's less likely that that action is going to be successful. So again, immediate present karma, not hard to see. But we often don't pay attention to that and don't, don't give the proper import to that understanding. So the next expression of karma is really interesting and becomes manifest a lot on retreat. In some way, it's one of the most, uh, I don't know, vivid experiences that we can have on retreat. And that is seeing how our past, how the mind retains the impressions of all our past actions. Have you had the experience of sitting and all of a sudden memories come that you didn't even know you remembered? What I find so amazing about the mind, and I've just over all these years, I've come to appreciate this more and more. I just have the feeling that the mind contains impressions of everything we have ever done that it's all in there. And at different times, these memories, these impressions are going to surface. And it becomes very clear, and it probably, you probably have experienced this, if a memory is coming up from some unwholesome action that we've done in the past, it very often brings a sense of remorse or maybe shame, or regret. And if a memory comes up of some wholesome things we've done, it really can bring a sense of joy and delight and appreciation of ourselves uh, in a a good way. So we see the arising of these past impressions is also a karmic result. Unwholesome actions in the past result in this present moment some kind of suffering. And the, and the wholesome ones bring about some kind of happiness. I have so many examples of this. I'll just mention one. Over the years of retreat, some of the memories that came up were some of the really unskillful things I did as a kid, as a boy. And I remember, I I don't even know. I wasn't really this kind of person. (laughs) But I remember, I grew up in a very small town. It was a very small group of friends. (laughs) It's embarrassing to say this. (laughs) I don't know. One day, it just got into my mind to round up some of my friends and we kind of hid behind a mound of dirt or something. And then this other friend came out, and we just started throwing rocks at him. <laughs> when I look back, I can't imagine what was going on in my mind at the time. But clearly, <laughs> something was. 
anyway, his mother ended up chasing me all the way through town. <laughs> but so years later, years later, maybe about 10 years ago, I went to my 50th high school reunion. And I, I met this kid who I'd grown up with. You know, we were in the same class. And I, I said, do you remember this? And he said, yes. <laughs> And I just apologized, you know. And it felt so good. It felt so good to acknowledge it, to apologize for it. So when there's that opportunity to do that, I think it's a really wholesome thing to do. Sometimes it's not. You know, circumstances don't allow. But we, we can kind of apologize in our minds, in our hearts. Um, as I said, there are countless examples of this. But this was, this was just a very vivid you know, memory that would come back periodically. I wouldn't say often, but more than once, you know, that memory would surface. What's interesting is that when we bring awareness and compassion to these surfacing impressions that come from so many of our past actions, it's actually a purifying process. So, you know, when we first see it, kind of the remembering an unwholesome action, uh, for me anyway, sometimes it's just a feeling of being aghast at, how could I have done that? You know, and then feel bad about it and all that. But by seeing it repeatedly, with being connected to it, unlike how my mind was when I committed the action, which was just a lot of delusion, in having it come up, in seeing it, being with it, allowing for it, accepting the fact that, yes, this is what happened, it is actually purifying, and it loses, it loses the charge. You know? And we learn how to be with all of these past actions with equanimity. Uh, and, and you really feel this as a process of purifying the heart. So instead of holding on to, you know, our reactivity to it all, we, come to, we really come to a place of peace with it. So this points to a distinction, and I don't remember whether I talked about it to the group or not, but would be worth repeating anyway. Really understanding the difference between guilt and remorse. Guilt, when we see things you know, that we've done that were not good, not wholesome, guilt is often a, a common response to that. And one time, it was about a different situation, but I was on retreat, a lot of guilt was coming up about something, and it was a lot of suffering. So that suffering piqued my interest. What, what's going on here that's causing the suffering? And I saw that, surprisingly, guilt is an ego trip. Because it's all about self being bad. I'm so bad for having done this, this, and this with an emphasis on the I, you know. And so when I saw that, oh, this, is, this is just a trick of the ego. 
So, you know, Mara is the term for, in Buddhism, the embodiment of delusion. And often the, <laughs> in the texts, uh, the Buddha or some other you know, monk or nun would say, Oh, Mara, I see you. So that's what I did with the guilt. Mara, I see you. <laughs> and then I saw that there was a wholesome side of acknowledging the unwholesome things we've done. And different people may call it different things, but, but I called it a wise remorse. Where we really are acknowledged, yeah, <laughs> I did this, and it was not a wholesome thing, and finally came to understand the unskillfulness of it. So we take responsibility. We're not pretending it didn't happen. We're not pushing it down. We're really connecting But that wise remorse is very different than guilt. Guilt is self-lacerating. And wise remorse is really the space of forgiveness. You know, it's acknowledging, it's seeing, it's taking responsibility. And it can become the cause for our future restraint of those kinds of actions because we've taken responsibility for it. So I think there is an appropriate way to be with the revelations you know, that come up in our minds in meditation very often, you know, of the unskillful things we've done and a way of being with it and holding it in a really skillful way. But I would watch out for the seduction of guilt because that's just adding suffering to the whole mix and it's as I say, it's, it's just a trick of Mara. It's a trick of ego. Okay, so another working of the law of karma is just becoming aware of all these impressions from past actions that are surfacing in the mind and seeing the effect on our minds you know, as that happens. So the next working of karma very relevant to all meditators. And that is that the way our practice unfolds, the way our understanding unfolds, is itself a karmic result of past actions. So, for example, for some people, progress is very slow. It just takes a long time. For some people, progress is very quick. Deepama, in one or two weeks, she'd reached high stages of enlightenment. You know, so that's quick progress. For some people, the predominant experience in practice is pleasant. For other people, the predominant experience in practice is unpleasant. So all of these are karmic results. These are the results of things we've done in the past. The observation I've made in my own practice and with many others is that most of us are in the slow, painful <laughs> alley. <laughs> you know, we, we just we keep going and we work with a lot of you know, pain in the body and difficulties in the mind. Uh, But the point is that how it unfolds is completely 
impersonal in the sense it's just the fruit you know of past actions and it's just conditions playing themselves out so I, I want to read something this is one of my favorite stories uh, highlighting the slow painful path uh, it's from the Terigata which are the songs of the nuns It is 25 years since I went forth, not even for the duration of a snap of the fingers have I obtained stilling of mind. Not having obtained peace of mind, drenched with desires for sense pleasures, holding out my arms, crying out, I entered the Vihara, the monastery. Okay, so this is her reflection after 25 years of practice. But then she entered the monastery, and this is what she said. Having heard the teachings over all these years, I sat down on one side. And in that moment of sitting down, applying and reflecting the teachings, she said, Now I know that I have lived before. The Deva I has been purified. Supernormal power has been realized by me. I have attained annihilation of the defilements. The Buddhist teaching has been done. 25 years of struggling. And then everything came together. Conditions were right. And her mind opened to enlightenment. So this is to say that We should hold however our practice is unfolding in realizing there are, there are causes and conditions behind the way it's unfolding, and it doesn't matter. So, uh, this, to, to reinforce the notion that it really doesn't matter, that our practice will unfold in one of those four ways, you know, fast or slow, pleasant or unpleasant. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He said, liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path and is bound to blossom forth where there is steady and persistent practice. The only requisites for reaching the final goal are two, to start and to continue. If these requirements are met, there is no doubt the goal will be attained. So I find that very reassuring. You know, because it's basically saying, yeah, our practice will unfold you know, in a lot of different ways, depending on our past karma, but it doesn't matter. Because if we just start and continue reaching the final goal is inevitable. Uh, So I think we can really take inspiration from that, and and inspiration. So this is summed up in something my teacher Munindraji said, characterizing the practice. Time is not a factor. So can we let go? You know, we are so, just as a culture, we're so time-bound and time-oriented and measure things you know, in time. 
But in Dharma practice, time is not a factor. We just do our practice, and we keep on walking, and the practice will bear fruit. So, one of the expressions of karma which probably we're most familiar with, but it's one that we probably most misunderstand or are confused about or bring some uh, mistaken impressions to. So, in one of the discourses, it's about a young householder coming to the Buddha and inquiring, why are there so many differences among people? You know, differences in every, difference in appearance, differences in circumstances, lots and lots of differences. So the Buddha explained the karmic consequences of different actions. So he talked about how generosity... Really cultivating generosity is the karmic cause of abundance. And lack of stinginess or miserliness or hoarding is the karmic cause of lack of abundance. Kind speech, gentle speech, he said, is the cause of beauty. Harsh speech, angry speech, is the cause of lack of beauty. Non-killing, non-harming, is the cause of long life. Killing living beings is the cause of a short life. Inquiry, investigation, is the cause for wisdom to arise. Lack of inquiry, lack of questioning, disinterest, is the cause of delusion and of ignorance. But as we begin to read this, and the Buddha goes on even, it's a longer list of things that he mentions, but just wanted to give you an idea of this teaching. But as we begin to explore this and look into it, really great care is needed because it's very easy to fall into some common misunderstandings about it. And people have brought up these things very often, you know, when they hear about karma. So there are a few points about it that I really want to highlight. Not everything that happens to us in our lives is a karmic result. There are many laws governing the unfolding of our lives. There are some just laws of nature which determine how things happen that have nothing to do with karma. It's just the physical laws of nature playing themselves out. But people sometimes think, oh yeah, everything that happens to me is a result of my past karma. And the Buddha was very explicit about saying, that is not true, that's not accurate. There are many different contributing laws at work and factors at work. The second thing that's really important to understand is that karma works out over innumerable lifetimes it's impossible to understand it in the context of a single life. We can understand aspects like present karma and these impressions of past experience coming up. But in terms of 
actions bringing future results, we need a very expansive vision, which the Buddha had. It's interesting, on the night of his enlightenment, <coughs> the, three, the three aspects that were revealed to him on the night of his enlightenment, he said the, in the first watch, he saw his innumerable, his innumerable past lives. In the second watch, <coughs> he saw the innumerable past lives of others, you know, being born and dying according to their karma. And then in the third watch, he <coughs> understood the law of dependent origination in the Four Noble Truths. So I find it interesting that such a key part of his awakening had to do with his understanding you know, of this law of karma going over lifetimes. So this is important to realize. In this greater vision, we realize that we have all done everything. You know, we've all accumulated lots of wholesome karma from wholesome actions, <clears throat> lots of unwholesome karma <clears throat> from unwholesome actions. We were all in this together. And when these actions will bring results, we don't know. We could be experiencing something from a hundred lifetimes ago arising now. There's no way for us to understand. That's what the Buddha meant when he said, this is too complex on this level for anybody but a Buddha mind to understand. But reflecting on this is really important and in a way that I'm going to describe in a moment. But it's realizing that we've all done things that have caused harm to others and ourselves, and we've all done things, we've all been benefactors to other beings. So all of us you know, have this mix within us. And even the Buddha... Although after his enlightenment, he was no longer creating karma, new karma, in his life, he was experiencing the results of past karma. And, you know, just kind of an interesting anecdote. You know, you may know from the Buddha's life that he uh, left home and left the palace at 29, six years, you know, and a lot of... uh, ascetic disciplines and torturing the body and all that. It took six years for him to become enlightened. In the text, it describes the fact that it took so long and involved so many painful experiences was the result of his past karma. It's something he had done way in the past, and that was the karmic result of how his practice unfolded. And there are stories of other Buddhas in the past who get enlightened the day they go forth. I want that path. So it's just to say that even for the Buddha, you know, this is how karma unfolds. So we can really see the commonality of this karmic predicament. Right? We're, we're all in this together. 
as we see the unfolding of our lives, sometimes reaping the fruit of good karma, sometimes reaping the fruit of unwholesome karma. But here's where the problem comes with understanding this particular teaching of the specific actions leading to specific kinds of results. Sometimes we confuse the understanding of this very impersonal process with attitudes of judgment, of resignation, of indifference. You know, if we are experiencing certain difficulties in our lives and just kind of, oh yeah, I must have done some really bad things. So we can get caught up in a lot of self-judgment. Or maybe it's just resignation or indifference. Or, and this is maybe even more unfortunate, as we are viewing the experiences of others, you know, maybe see them as going through some difficulty, there can be this unfortunate tendency to blame the victim. Oh, well, you know, that was just your karma. So that, that is completely missing the essence of this teaching and how it should be held. We can understand that situations have causes and conditions behind them. One of them being the law of karma. It's not the only one, but it's one of the causes behind uh, our unfolding. So we can appreciate the fact that, yeah, the, the particular experiences we're having are the result of past causes and conditions and still respond to present suffering with love, with compassion, with engagement. And so this attitude of thinking of karma, oh, well, it's just their fault, or it's just my fault, is a completely uh, unhelpful and untrue way of holding this very essential teaching. And for this reason, I find that generally, I think it's much more helpful to contemplate the law of karma going forward rather than trying to understand it looking backwards. Because looking backwards, we just don't know. You know, If, if we did something 100 lifetimes ago and it's resulting in something now, It doesn't, it, that doesn't have much meaning for us. But when we understand and deep, deeply understand how the law of karma is working in our lives and are looking forward, that can be a tremendous inspiration to pay attention, to pay attention to our motivations, knowing that the actions we do now, at one point or another, will bring results. they're going to have some effect, some result. And the question is that we should really ask ourselves as we're about to perform different actions, is the result of this action based on the motivation someplace I want to go? You know, if we're about to do something that's just very greedy and you know, seduced by desire, 
and we're mindful enough to reflect before the action. Oh, yeah, greed. This is going to lead to an unpleasant, unwholesome result at some point. Maybe immediate, maybe next life, maybe a hundred lifetimes. But it's going to bring about an unwholesome result. And so holding the question, do I want to go there? But we want to consider that before we do the action. Because after the action, the karmic seed has been planted. That's why it's really important and subtle. This, this, this requires a lot of attention in our lives. You know, to be watching our minds with interest. You know, and just notice, okay, well, what's, what, are the, what are the mental factors you know, at work in the motivation behind what I want to do? So there's a Tibetan prayer of metta and compassion which I think beautifully expresses a way of holding this understanding um, in a really beautiful way, a very wholesome way. So this, this, is, this is the Tibetan, Tibetan prayer. <clears throat> May you have happiness and the causes of happiness. May you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And I like that because it acknowledges that there are causes behind the happiness and the suffering. And our wish for ourselves and everyone else. May you have happiness and the causes of happiness. May you be free of suffering and free of the causes of suffering. So to me that's very... uh, is embraceive a word? <laughs> embracing. It, that's a very embracing quality of the heart. It's just acknowledging this karmic situation, the law of karma in all of our lives, playing itself out in so many different ways. And we can hold it with this beautiful wish, you know, for ourselves and for others. And hopefully it can inspire us to really pay attention. You know, because our actions have consequences. And we need to we need to deeply understand that. And it will have such a beneficial, you know, beneficial effect on our lives. Okay, um, <laughs> the talk could go on for quite a while, but I'm gonna Edit. <laughs> so just kind of closing thoughts. The reason I wanted to give this talk, and I don't give this talk often because I know it's kind of sobering. You know, in general I like to give inspiring and uplifting and people leave feeling happy. <laughs> and this is kind of it's sobering, you know, because it's really addressing just some fundamental aspects of understanding how our lives unfold. And often I see it in myself and other teachers, sometimes 
are reluctant to talk about those teachings which are a little harder to take in. But the older I get, I feel like that's really a disservice. You know, the Buddhist teachings is so broad and so meaningful and so deep in so many ways um, that I think it's just important to put out, you know, as much of his understanding that affects us as possible. And for me, this understanding and teaching about the law of karma is so powerful because it gives us agency in our lives. Instead of just playing out the patterns of our conditioning, if we understand how it's all working, it really empowers us then to make the choices in our lives that will bring about happiness. So it feels like a really essential, important piece of understanding. It's, it's really a great empowerment of our beings. So I'll close with just these couple of lines from the haiku poet Basho, who is a wonderful haiku poet. The temple bell stops, but the music keeps coming out of the flowers. You know, and I love that. It's, the temple bells, our actions are over, but the results keep coming out of the flowers, out of everything in our lives. Uh, and so just to, to realize that and to appreciate that, uh, I think brings a, lot of, brings a lot of confidence and a lot of joy in our lives because we do feel empowered. Okay. Thank you for listening <laughs> to this sobering talk. Uh, let's sit for just a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.